Well, uh, hello everyone. You will notice that I've given you a handout. This is before I start. And uh, you'll also notice that it has very strange looking materials at the back. And what they are are texts from the ancient world, writings from the ancient world. Now, sermons, as you know, traditionally have three points, three examples or three illustrations and two jokes. I'm not giving you three illustrations. I'm giving you four texts that come from the first century world. Um, Two of them are by a writer called Seneca. He was a philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, who happened to be the tutor of Nero and eventually... um, was uh, killed, uh, or in his case, committed suicide uh, because of the reign of of, um, Nero. Pliny was a governor of Bithynia, and uh, in 111 AD, he interviewed two female deaconesses before he decided what to do with them as a Roman governor. So that's who these people are, and the texts are there to illustrate something for us in each case about slavery in the first century world. So I hope it'll be helpful. I guess it must have been with great expectation that Susan left her East African country to become a housekeeper in a Western country. She was met at the airport by her new uh, family and taken to a two-bedroom house. That was the last time she would be able to get out of that house for a very long time. It was permanently locked and when the bins were put out, they were not put out by her because she might escape, but by the owners of the house. She worked 18 hours a day as a housekeeper. She slept under the dining table with three dogs. Each day, the kids would come out and jump on her to wake her up. And the promise she was given in terms of wages was $15.65 per month. It never eventuated. And her passport was taken away from her by the family that she was living with, so she could not return to her country. I wonder which country that occurred in. I wonder which city that occurred in. In 2016 that occurred in Sydney, Australia and it is part of the trafficking of people as slaves throughout the world and if you go to the police website you will find out that in their estimation there are something in the region of 300 to 1,000 people trafficked each year in Australia from their country of origins to become slaves in our own country. We are one of 29 destinations in the world for slaves being trafficked. So this little funny letter of Philemon about slavery actually has intense relevance to us because it's an increasing problem. But it is also powerfully relevant as well 
because we need to understand the new set of relationships that are opened up for us in the body of Christ because of what Paul says here. This silly little letter which Paul wrote and which the slave owner Philemon received, a Christian believer, a convert of Paul, was probably in the viewpoint of Philemon never going to survive very long. I wonder if Paul even thought it was going to survive very long. And yet it has become one of the defining letters in Western civilization, one of the most important ones, which challenged slavery at its very core. Now, that's a very radical statement to make, and I hope to show that to you by doing, first of all, in what I'm going to say, a little bit of background about slavery in the first century AD. Then from that background, I'm going to pull out um, some central principles in terms of what Paul is saying. I'm then going to consider a little bit uh, why Paul sent this runaway slave Onesimus back to his Christian master. That's an interesting um, question itself. And lastly, I'm going to think about how this very small letter applies to us today. So that's the structure of things. Remember, the first part of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is slavery in the first century AD. What was the legal and moral status of slaves in the first century AD? It's quite plain. They were possessions. They were not people. They were something that you owned in the same way that we own cars, in the same way that we own lawnmowers, uh, each useful for their respective purposes. So under Roman law, the slave is not a legal person at all, but a possession. He is a thing, or she is a thing, a material object. And to underline the fact that slaves had no status at all, legally, it's important to realise that their marriages were not recognised in Roman law. Yes, slaves married, cohabited, but the children from those marriages were not recognised. They just became objects which the master owned and the marriages themselves were not recognised in law. In fact, to underscore the whole point, in 52 AD, uh, around about the time that Paul was writing, a law was passed that any free woman who married a slave became a slave herself. That ensures that the social hierarchy is maintained. Now, just to show you a little bit about the status of slaves and, and how they are considered, I go to my first text at the back of your sheet. And here Pliny, the Roman governor of uh, around about 111 AD, says this about slaves. He says, painting has always had the honour of being practised by men of free birth and later high status. 
there has always been a ban on teaching it to slaves. That is why there are no famous works of art nor statues made by anyone who is a slave. You do not teach art to your lawnmower. You do not teach art to your Audi car. You teach it to human beings. And slaves are not worthy of being taught the arts. What was the prospect for slaves? Now here we must, I think, get rid of our various movies that we see on TV about slavery in 19th century America. Negro slavery is a different phenomenon to what slavery was in the first century AD. There were certainly, in the first century AD, cases of terrible treatment of slaves. These were, however, unusual. But there are also cases of outstanding kindness to slaves as well. Let's give you a bad example first of all. Here's my second text at the back of your sheet. Um, Here Seneca says uh, to us, he's reporting on the mistake that a slave made and the response of the master. One of the host's slaves had broken a crystal cup. Vadius ordered the man to be seized and executed in a particularly bizarre way by being thrown as food to lampreys. He kept some huge ones in his fish pond. Who would say that he did this for any other reason other than ostentation? It was an act of savagery. The boy escaped and fled to Caesar's feet for refuge. All he was going to ask for was to be allowed to die in some other way than as food for fishes. Here's the good bit. Caesar was horrified at this unprecedented cruelty and ordered the slave to be set free, all the crystal cups to be smashed in his presence and the fish pond to be filled in. You would not want to be a slave of Vadius. However, if you're a slave of Zosimus, a slave of Pliny the Younger, um, then that's not too bad. Because we hear about Zosimus the slave. He was a highly accomplished slave and he got tuberculosis. What do you do? Well, you send your slave, of course, off on a cruise to Egypt to get better. The slave returned, seemingly sort of okay again, got sick once more. So, once again, he was sent off on this time to a friend's villa at the Phaeus in Egypt so he could recover, so he could be back to his old job of playing music and reading out texts to Pliny the Younger. It was the right climate there. And, of course, the cure was to drink lots of milk, apparently. Must have worked. You see, slavery and your experience of it depended upon who your master was. And if you turn to Philippians chapter 4, a few epistles before this, you come across a very interesting verse in verse 22. Paul says here, All God's people here send you greetings 
especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Who are those that belong to Caesar's household? Who are those who belong, in the Latin, to the familiar Caesarus? Slaves. And of course, it means that at Rome, you could be in the emperor's household, perhaps having the magnificent job of cleaning whatever the first century equivalent of the toilets were, or you could be an imperial bureaucrat helping the emperor run all the affairs that encompassed his desk day by day. In other words, you could be a powerful, influential person. And it is possible that some of the early Christians reached the lower levels of these ranks in the first century AD, at least before their persecution under Nero. So there are the interesting views about the status of slaves and how it sort of differs a little bit to what we see on films about Negroes in 19th century America. And what of their future? The answer was that by the first century AD, most slaves could look forward to freedom. The great year was 30 years of age. After 10 to 20 years of service, you would be freed. But where would you go? You'd stay with your master. You've got no other option. You'd be free, but you're still working for your master. And any children that are, of course, born in your illegal marriage are the masters, and they have to wait for 30 or so years until they can be free and continue working with the master. But some of these slaves rose to great power. One of them is Felix. Don't know if you ever heard of Felix, but if you read the book of Acts, you find out that he is the governor who was sent to Judea to try the Apostle Paul. So he is an ex-slave, a freedman, who's risen to enormous power and status. So there are interesting, as I put, put it, interesting divergences in status among slaves in the first century AD. What's the situation here? In the case of Philemon, we are dealing with perhaps a runaway slave. Commentators have often latched upon a particular verse here to sort of point to the fact that indeed um, there there is uh, a a runaway slave. Um, You will notice, I'm just uh, going back to Philemon if that's okay, Um, you will notice that... uh, Paul says in verse 18, if he has done wrong, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Reading behind the lines. Did Onesimus steal something? Make his way to Rome somehow? Run into Paul there in jail? And this whole scenario devolved. A much more likely interpretation, however, is that something went wrong in the relationship between Onesimus, the slave, and the Christian master Philemon. And according to first century Roman law, a slave had the right, if it was an 
reconcilable kind of issue, to seek out a powerful patron of the Christian master or the non-Christian master, as case may be, go to him and get the patron to intervene on your behalf. And undoubtedly, Onesimus was well aware that Paul was a very special person to Philemon. He was, of course, the man who had brought Christ into his master's life. And surely if he went to Rome, where Paul currently was, in jail, how hard is he going to be uh, able to be found in that location? Presumably not too difficult. Paul might intervene on his behalf to solve the issue between him and his master. So that's uh, speculative. Both scenarios are speculative, but either way, that's the kind of situations that we're facing. You might sort of uh, ask how on earth would Paul be able to identify him as a runaway slave anyway if he didn't admit it? And the answer was, again going to our text here, uh, third text down, you'll notice that slaves, of course, wore metal collars. I have run away. Hold me. You will get a gold solidus if you return me to my master, Zeninus. What's the responsibility of Paul in all of this? Does he have to return the slave back to his master? It depends upon where the slave came from. If the slave was born in Rome, if the slave was born in a Roman city like Corinth or Philippi or Pisidian Antioch, the answer was yes, Roman law applies. He must be returned to his master. If he came from Ephesus, a Greek city, no obligation. Paul didn't have to do that. So this is interesting. We don't know if he came from a Roman city, but if he didn't, Paul did not have to return him legally. What is interesting is that he did. And here we have to work out why. Well, having now sort of skirted out, I think, uh, as much background as we want and need, uh, though I will say one final thing, Um, it would be no mean thing, by the way, of sending a slave back to the master. Punishments were severe. Um, You could have hot metal plates being placed around your legs. You would have the words, the letters F-U-G stamped on your forehead the first three letters in our English word fugitive and they would be stamped in your forehead for the rest of your life. So punishments were severe. So Paul would have to think very carefully about what he was doing. So let's think now about the relationship between Paul, Onesimus and Philemon that is revealed in our letter. Remember, Paul is in prison. We know this from verse 23. And Probably it's at Rome. And Onesimus has sought, I'm suggesting, sanctuary with him as a powerful patron so that Paul can intervene on his behalf. Philemon and his wife, Aphia, were both Christians, converted under Paul. 
with Philemon in particular um, running the house church, that the believers in the Lycus Valley lived in under him as the leader of the house church. Notice the little comment in verse 19. You owe me your very self. Paul is putting the screws on Philemon here. You are a believer. You have come to know Christ. What I'm going to ask you, you need to pay attention to. What is extraordinary is the change in relations that has occurred through the conversion of Philemon and the conversion of Onesimus. And here we come to the first reason why Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. And the first reason is that that there is a new family relationship established in Christ that transcends the old slave-master relationship. Now notice how Paul underscores the family relationships in what he says. Paul in Christ, in verse 10, says that he is the father in Christ of Onesimus. In verse 19, he says that he is the father in Christ of Philemon. So since he is the father in Christ of both, they are now brothers. There is a family relationship. And indeed, he underscores this in verse 16. Notice what he says, that you will have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Something profound has changed here. And what's interesting is the language of affection and the deep love relationship that occurs between Christian brothers. Paul describes Onesimus in verse 12 as his very dear heart. And then in verse 16, he says to um, uh, Philemon that now Onesimus is even dearer to you. You see, the slave-master relationship changes in Christ. The new creation has begun. Onesimus doesn't have to wait until he's 30 to be free. He is already free in Christ. This was a radical, society-changing thought. And my last text on the bottom of the page I'm going to read out to you. Now, this is as good as it gets as far as liberated thinking regarding slaves in the first century AD. And I'm telling you, it is darn impressive. This is what Seneca says. You must think carefully about the fact that the man whom you call your slave is born from the same seed, enjoys the same sky, breathes like you, dies like you. 
We are all human beings. The differences are negligible. Then he goes on to say, you are able to recognise a free man in him as he is to recognise a slave in you. So when the slave, Seneca says, is looking at his master, what he's seeing is another slave. When the master is looking at his slave, what he's seeing is a member of his own class, another master. Everything is now topsy-turvy because we are all human beings. But now we know why this small letter is so powerful, why it is unique amongst correspondence in the ancient world. Because Paul was not saying here that social relationships are turned upside down because we are all the same human beings. He's certainly saying that social relationships are turned upside down. Why? Because we are family and we are indebted to each other with the debt of love. We are in family relationship because we have Christ as our brother and we have God as our father. Like it or not, we are family. And notice what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. We are neither slave nor free. Why? Because we're equal? No, it's not because we're equal. Paul doesn't say that. He says something much more profound. It's because we are one in Christ. I can treat all you people as my equal, but I don't have to like you. I don't have to engage with you. I don't have to have any responsibilities to you at all. But I can treat you all impartially as equals. Suddenly, however, if you're family, that's a game changer. I can no longer be distant. I can no longer just say, well, no, it's good to hear. Um, see you next week. No, I can't do that. I am now in a relationship of family that means there is unity together and you are responsible for me and I am responsible for you in a way that goes far beyond equality. So there's the first reason why Paul sends Onesimus back. The answer is that there is a family relationship. And the second reason why he sends them back is that there has to be reconciliation. Because they are family, because they are brothers in Christ, there has to be reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. That's the second reason why he sends them back. And if there is reconciliation... then suddenly this useless slave becomes useful for Christian service. Certainly for Paul during his imprisonment, verse 13, and certainly useful to Philemon in the future, 
verse 11. Isn't it interesting how reconciliation between polarised opposites opens up great opportunities for the gospel here. I'm now going to give you four applications. And I've sort of summed them up under snappy little headings, though I will not be disappointed if you regard the snappy headings as not all that snappy. But they summarise what I want to say. The first thing I want to say is, is that in handling people, the less pressure you put on them, the more give you will find. Notice how Paul handles the situation in verses 8 to 9. He says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man now, now and also a prisoner of Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Notice also in verse 14 what he says. But I do not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Now I have to say... There's no doubt that Paul was putting the screws on, of course, um, Philemon here. I've already mentioned that he has said, you owe it to me. You have come to know Christ through me. And also, don't forget that this letter is going to be read out in front of everyone in the house church. And everyone's going to look around and have a good geek at, you know, Philemon over there and just say, well, um, uh, how are you and uh, Onesimus getting along now, now that we've heard this from Paul? So there is pressure. But notice Paul's view of authority. Paul does not want to be heavy-handed. He wants to be tactful. He's keen to see God's change people's behaviour rather than he coerce it unfairly. And notice that Paul adopts this approach as an old man. Do you know what the problem is with angry young men is? What's the problem with angry young men? The problem is this. If they are not careful, they will grow into angry old men. What's the problem with an angry young woman? She might grow into an angry old woman. So learn to become gentle, not heavy-handed, tactful as you grow older because that is what God wants. How different Paul was as an old man to the persecutor of Christians that he was as a young man. The second thing I want to pull out from our text is that God picks up the pieces. Notice in verse 11, this is what's said there. He says, Formerly he was useless to you, 
But now he's become useful both to you and to me. You see, Onesimus means useful one. But because he'd run away, he'd become useless. But now, because he had been found in Christ and reintroduced into God's family and reconciled with Philemon, he was now useful. Imagine that you are a fly on the wall of the house of Philemon. Open the door, there's your runaway slave. He hands over the letter. I wonder what Philemon did. Did he clip him on the ear before he even got the letter? I wonder if he gave him a few well-thought swear words and told him what he really thought of him. There is no doubt what happened. We know what happened in terms of church history. God picks up the pieces. God restores the relationships. God makes the useless useful. We know the result in the case of Onesimus. Church tradition tells us that he became the bishop of Ephesus in the province of Asia. The useless runaway slave. I remember very well becoming a leader of a beach mission and that was many years after when at 18 I decided at that time as a young guy that I did not want to go to beach mission. I did not have the courage to tell the beach mission leader of the time that I no way wanted to be part of this fruity group of Christians. And I didn't have the courage to tell him that. And on the day, the 26th, I sort of wondered if indeed anyone would turn up to my house to see if I was coming. And I thought, no, they won't come. And I thought, well, just in case, I'll go for a small drive. So I drove to Katoomba and back. Sure enough, they turned up. Many years later, God picked up the pieces and I was leading the beach mission at Tarthra for a long time. And that's where I met my delightful wife. God picks up the pieces. Verses 15 to 16. God continually surprises us. Notice what's said. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. I guarantee you, but that was not the thought that went through, of course, Philemon's mind when the slave nicked off. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. I bet you that one never occurred to him. You see, terrible things happen in our lives that are inexplicable, some of which we understand this side of, the, uh, of life, others that we don't understand at all. And we have to wait until we meet Christ. But God continually surprises us. As Corrie ten Boom said, God not only has the answers to our questions in his hands, but the very questions themselves. Last point. Expect the best of people. Isn't Paul delightful? Verse 21, he says... Confident of your obedience, I write to you. I wonder why Paul would be confident of the obedience of 
Philemon. Well, he knows Philemon, of course, and he knows that he's a godly man. But why would you be confident about his obedience? And the answer is, is that Paul expects the best of people. I was a high school teacher for some 15 years. If you hear a lot of noise in the class, it's quite obvious that the kids are up to something. If you hear absolute quiet in the class, the kids are definitely up to something. You just couldn't win with me. I didn't expect the best of my class at various times. So Paul is a person who expects the best of people. And of course he'd be let down. But why is he so optimistic? It stems from his doctrine of God. It stems from the two previous points. He has experienced that God is a God who continuously surprises us. He has experienced the fact that God is a God who picks up the pieces. And as a result, he can be confident about the future and he can be confident about the people that he puts his trust in. Amen.